Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is 1 John 2, verses 28 to 1 John 3, verse, verse 10. Pastor Charlie asked Marie and I to read the scriptures this morning, both in English and French. So I will go through a few verses at a time, and Marie will read in French afterwards. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Et maintenant, petits enfants, demeurez en lui, afin que, lorsqu'il paraîtra, nous ayons de l'assurance, et qu'à son avènement, nous ne soyons pas confus et éloignés de lui. Si vous savez qu'il est juste, reconnaissez que quiconque pratique la justice est né de lui. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Voyez quel amour le Père nous a témoigné, pour que nous soyons appelés enfants de Dieu. Et nous le sommes. Si le monde ne nous connaît pas, c'est qu'il ne l'a pas connu. Bien-aimés, nous sommes maintenant enfants de Dieu, et ce que nous serons n'a pas encore été manifesté. Mais nous savons que, lorsque cela sera manifesté, nous serons semblables à lui, parce que nous le verrons tel qu'il est. Quiconque a cette espérance en lui se purifie comme lui-même est pur. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Quiconque pêche transgresse la loi et le péché est la transgression de la loi. Or, vous le savez, Jésus apparut pour ôter les péchés, et il n'y a point en lui de péché. Quiconque demeure en lui ne pêche point. Quiconque pêche ne l'a pas vu et ne l'a pas connu. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Petits enfants, que personne ne vous séduise. Celui qui pratique la justice est juste, comme lui-même est juste. Celui qui pêche est du diable, car le diable pêche dès le commencement. Le Fils de Dieu a paru afin de détruire les œuvres du diable. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Quiconque est né de Dieu ne, pr ne pratique pas le péché, parce que la semence de Dieu demeure en lui, et il ne peut pécher, parce qu'il est né de Dieu. C'est par là que se font reconnaître les enfants de Dieu et les enfants du diable. Quiconque ne pratique pas la justice n'est pas de Dieu, non plus que celui qui n'aime pas son frère. As many of you will remember from uh, past weeks, John wrote this his first letter, 
to combat some false teachers in the church who were influencing God's people there. And so John wrote, in order that the believers might sustain their fellowship with God and not be led astray by the false teachers, uh, I take from all of John's letter that I think the teachers were trying to essentially lead the people away from following Christ and toward their version of what they felt Christ was. And so John wrote to them to persuade them not to follow those people, but to remain with Christ and to keep pursuing Christ. And in doing so, he was writing that their joy might become full and and very, very full at that. As I said last week, the way that John goes about this task really amazes me. Because if I was to have written this letter against false teachers, I probably would have just gone right into the teaching itself and just started dealing with the ideas. But that's not how John does things. First of all, he begins the letter by telling us to deal with our own sin. He doesn't even talk about the teachers to begin with. First of all, he says, look in the mirror. Look at yourself. See your sin. Confess your sin before God. And be assured that if you will confess your sin openly and honestly before Him, that He will forgive you of all of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That is tremendously good news. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, he says that, listen, I'm writing so that you don't sin. He doesn't want us to sin. He wants us to walk away from the ways of the world and walk towards the ways of Christ. But then he says, if you do sin, and the way he wrote that in Greek, it means when you sin, when you do sin, we have an advocate for us, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, the Almighty One, and He is arguing on our behalf to God the Father. And as Mike so powerfully said a few weeks ago, when Jesus Christ speaks to the Father, the Father always listens. The Father is always persuaded by Jesus' arguments. And His argument is, Father, forgive them because they have believed in Me and I died for their sins to take their sins away. So hallelujah, we have sinned and we will sin. But if we'll simply confess our sin, Jesus Christ will advocate on our behalf And not only forgive us, but cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Oh, how I pray that the wonder of that would never, ever be lost on us. We would never be bored with the fact that our sins have been forgiven. John moves on from there in the next part of chapter 2 to talk about submitting to God. And I think the reason he does this is because all throughout the Bible there's a deep connection between love for God and obedience before God. It is impossible to say that you love God and yet walk in rebellion against Him. Well, it's not impossible to do that, but it makes you a hypocrite though. When you say, God, I love you, but then you live a life where you just disobey everything He's commanded to you, the truth is you don't love Him. In in fact, you're walking in hatred toward Him. And so John, as a loving father and pastor, is trying to say, listen, if you want to remain in fellowship with God and have a fullness of joy, you must submit your life to Him. And then next closely connected with that, we must also love one another. That's the next section that he goes into. He deals with our sin, then deals with submission to God, and then says you must also love one another. And you remember from the greatest commandment that Jesus did the same thing. He was asked what the one greatest commandment is, but he gave two. He said the greatest commandment is to love God with everything in us, but then the second one is to love one another as we love ourselves. Because It's impossible to love God whom I have not seen and to hate those God loves whom I have seen. To love God is to love what God loves. And God loves the church more than anything else but His own glory. That's true. 
God the Father sent God the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit to live a righteous life and die and to be raised again from the dead. Why? To create the church. And out of the church He made a temple and a body and a bride for Himself. Believe me, He loves the church more than anything other than His own glory. And so in order to love Him, we must love what He loves. In other words, we must love one another. We can't walk in hatred horizontally and claim that we're walking in love vertically. Finally, after all of that, John gets to the false teachers. Deal with your sin. Submit your life to God. Love one another. Now we're ready to talk about the false teachers. And he tells us that the teachers he's most concerned about come from inside the church and that the way to sniff them out is to focus on what they teach about the person of Jesus Christ. They indeed will teach false things about many things. But central to it all will be a distortion of the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to sniff out a false teacher, pay careful attention to what they say about Jesus or just ask him directly. As I said last week, if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, don't get into all the peripheral discussions with them. Go right to the heart of the matter. What do you believe and teach about Jesus Christ? That'll, that'll reveal everything that needs to be revealed. I think the reason John goes about things the way that he did is to say that, listen, in order to discern what others are doing well, you have to get yourself right with God first. Amen? In order for me to see clearly the sin of somebody else, I need to get the log out of my own eye. I need to be right with God and then pride will be removed from my heart and judgmentalism and legalism and all kinds of things that might cause me to assess another teacher's teaching in a distorted way. God wants us to see things clearly, but in order to see them clearly, we must clean out this heart of ours. And the only way to do that is to bring ourselves before God, confess our sins, submit our lives to Him, and learn to love one another. It's just such a powerful thing to me to think about how John approaches the subject of false teaching. Pick up any book in any library or on Amazon.com on what to do about false teaching and you won't see this way of arguing there, probably. I've never seen it before. And it really has impressed me. Charlie Handron, if you want to be able to, to discern who the false teachers in the land are so that you can protect the sheep, here's what you do. Get right with God. And when you get right with God, He'll give you eyes to see. Now, just as amazing to me as all that, John immediately returns now to the subject of our sin. He goes right back to the beginning. But this time in the section before us today, he cuts very, very deeply. In fact, he cuts so deeply that in 1986 it saved my soul. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. Beloved, for those of us who believe in the Word of God, that this book was not just written by John but that it was actually breathed out by God and literally represents the will and the ways of God for our lives. We simply cannot quickly read over a text like this and then go on with our lives like nothing happened. Oh, how I pray that we will not hear the sermon today, listen to the Word today, and then just go to lunch and, and move on with our lives like, like we haven't heard anything at all. For those of us who believe God is speaking to us in the Word, oh, how I pray we'll have ears to hear and eyes to see. And I want to pray along those lines with you now. So please bow with me. Father, Your Word is a double-edged sword. And it always cuts, but sometimes it cuts very deeply. 
And my sense of this text is that this is a very sharp scalpel that will cut very deeply. And so I want to ask you to give us eyes to see. I want to ask you to give us ears to hear. I want to ask you to give us hearts to receive what you have for us today. I want to ask you to give us wills that will bend towards you and reject the things of the devil. I want to ask you, Lord Jesus Christ, to come and do a sin-removing work today, to do a devil-destroying work today. It says in this text that you came to destroy the works of the devil, and I pray that we would witness that with our own eyes in our own lives even now. Please, Father, remove from us patterns of sin that are not pleasing to you and replace them with patterns of righteousness that are pleasing to you. We have no hope but you alone in this. And so we give ourselves to you now and thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I see three movements, if you will, in the, in the verses that Andre and Marie read for us today. And so what I want to do is just work through each one of them and sort of build an argument along the way. The first one is in chapter 2, 28 through 29. So let me read those quickly again. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. This word that is translated in our Bibles, little children, is a very, very tender and affectionate word. In the Greek language, just as in English, there were a number of words that could be used for the word child. And John chose one here that is particularly affectionate and particularly familial. You would not say this word to anyone who was not in your family or to anyone that you didn't like or love very, very much. And so he chooses what is certainly the most affectionate word for child in the Greek language here. And I think the reason that he does that is because he knows he's about to pierce our soul pretty deeply. And I think that like a surgeon who has to wound us for our good, John wants us to know that he cares, that he loves us, that he's on our side, and he's trying to be tender with us. I'm very moved by the tenderness of John here in this passage. In fact, yesterday, thinking about it, actually brought tears to my eyes. I was so moved by it. Because behind the tenderness of John is the tenderness of our Father, the Lord and God. He is holy beyond imagination, and He hates sin beyond what we can think. And yet, in Christ, He is so tender and compassionate toward us. It's not just that He has forgiven us our sin, but He receives us as a tender father would receive a beloved child. So I pray that you would hear that in those words, little children, and I hope that you'll keep that in mind as we move along. The command that John issues here in verse 28 is the command that sort of stretches over this whole section of Scripture, and it's very simple. It's simply abide in Him. Three words, abide in Him. The word abide means to remain somewhere. It means to cling to something and stay clung to it. It means to follow Christ and to keep on following Him and not to be distracted, in this case, by false teaching that was trying to draw people away from Christ. So get the image in your mind of clinging to Christ and not letting go. That's the command. Abide in Christ. And the reason John wants us to cling to Christ, among other things, is because one day Jesus is going to return again visibly and physically to this earth but this time He will not come for the sake of forgiveness of sin. He will come to judge the world. 
And in that day, John wants us to be able to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ with confidence, he says, or it could be translated even boldness, rather than shrinking from Him in shame because of the life that we have lived. He wants us to be able to look Jesus Christ eyeball to eyeball with the confidence that we have already in fact been walking with Him. He doesn't want us to have to look upon a stranger, if you will. But when we see Jesus, we'll see Him whom we've already known and whom we have been walking with. This is the kind of confidence that He wants us to have. This is the kind of joy that He wants us to have in that moment. And so the command is to abide in Him. question rises in my mind, what more specifically then, John, does it mean to abide? What does it look like to cling to Christ? And he begins to answer in verse 29, which is going to pull us all the way through the rest of this text. And mainly what he says is that to abide in Christ is to practice righteousness. The one who practices righteousness is the one who clings to Christ. The one who practices righteousness will have great joy on that day when Christ appears rather than great grief. And so we're to abide in Him. More about that in a minute. Let's look for now at chapter 3, 1 through 3. John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Some of your translations might read here something like, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. The ESV translates this, see what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us. And in this case, the ESV is, is dead right about this. The only reason I bring it up is because I know some of your translations read differently. But the Greek very literally reads, what kind of love? See what kind of love, what type, what manner, what category of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And I think what John is trying to do is get us to meditate on what God has done and see how absolutely unique His love is in the history of the world, either of heaven or of earth. There is no love among angels or among men that is anything approaching to the love of God in Jesus Christ. Not only has this great and holy and mighty God forgiven us our sins when He could rightly have destroyed us for any one sin that we sinned, but He has embraced us in Christ as His beloved children. And again, when John calls us the children of God here, he uses that very affectionate word. God has, in it, as it were, brought us, brought us up into His lap and hugged us. He's brought us very close to Himself. No angel that's ever existed has ever dared to dream about getting this close to God. This is how God has treated us. And the thing is, we're sinners. We are sinners. It would make sense to me for a holy God to treat someone who was perfectly holy like that. Like an angel who had never sinned. But it is mind-blowing to me that God would take a person like me who has spent so much of my life rebelling against Him and to turn me into a tender child of His own. See what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. 
His love is so extraordinary, beloved, that it says in Ephesians 2, 7, that for all of eternity, heaven and earth will praise Him because of what He's done for us. And that's true. Now, as if that wasn't enough, John shares more that takes our breath away if we take it seriously in verse 2. Mainly, what he says is that when Jesus Christ appears to us, not only will we be His children, but we are actually going to be transformed into His image. We will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. This is a very profound thing. This word appears does mean, and it does refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. That day when Jesus said it would be like the lightning striking from one side of the sky to the other. He said the Son of Man will appear. He will come on the clouds with His holy angels and He will separate the sheep from the goats. It is the physical, visible appearing of Jesus Christ that John has in mind, to be sure. But I, I think there's something even a little deeper than that. And that is to say that not only will the physical appearance of Christ be revealed, but the depth of His character and being will be revealed. What I mean is that in that moment when He appears, every eye who sees Him will instantly know that He is holy and wise and true and steadfast and good and just and righteous and merciful. The fullness of the character of Jesus Christ will be revealed and no one will be able to deny Him any longer. This is why it says that every single knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not just His physical appearance and power that will strike them to their knees. It is the inner revelation of the character of Christ and in the light of His holiness, we will all be struck to our hearts and bow our knees and worship Him who is holy. Stunning to think about. Just absolutely breathtaking to think about this moment. And not only will He be so revealed, but for those who have believed in Him by His grace, He will transform them into His image. The word here is metamorphosis. It means we will be changed like a, a caterpillar into a butterfly, into the image of Christ. I don't know exactly what that means. I can't picture it in my head. I do think that there is a sense in which physically we will take on His likeness somehow or other. Although I don't know really what that will look like. But I think in a more profound sense, we will take on His character. When we see Christ face to face and embrace Him who loved us, we will in an instant become holy as He is holy. We will become focused and set apart for God as He is focused and set apart for God. We will become clean. We will become gentle. We will become loving. We will become all the things that the fruit of the Spirit are. It will happen to us in a moment of time as His character is revealed to us and somehow by the power of that exposure we will become like Him. No more sin in this heart. No more straying in this heart. No more wandering from God in this heart. Oh God knows how often I wander from Him now. But in that day, no more wandering. All of us will fix our eyes upon the Lord God through Jesus Christ and we will never look away for a singular moment, forever. We will never again be distracted because we will be changed into the character of Christ. I am kind of excited to think about what our physical appearance would be, but to be honest with you, that is a much lesser concern to me. 
I really look forward to the day when I become holy as Christ is holy and every vestige of sin and evil and rebellion is ripped out of this heart. I cannot wait for that day. Till the day when I love the Lord my God with all of my heart and love my brothers and sisters as myself without any distraction, without any failure. Behold what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us, beloved, that we should be called the children of God and be promised such a destiny as this. It is really and truly mind-blowing. Now, John makes a point in verse 3 that begins a series of arguments that he's going to make here that kind of develop his main point in these verses. In verse 3, he says that if you have that hope living inside of you, that one day you will see Jesus Christ face to face and the devil will be totally defeated from you and you will be like Him. If you have that hope living in you, then you will purify yourself as He is pure. Or if I can just put that in regular language, you'll spend your life getting ready for that day. It's like your wedding is coming up and it's a big deal to you and there's lots of details but you're excited and all you can think about is getting ready for that big day. It's like that. And so whoever has this hope living in him or living in her, you will seek purity even as that one is pure. As I said, with this, John is beginning to build a series of arguments for why those who who know Christ, truly know Christ, must practice righteousness. And that if they don't practice righteousness, the thing that that tells you is that they do not know Christ. So argument one for that is that if the hope of seeing Jesus Christ is truly living in you, you will seek purity. You will seek holiness. You will seek to practice a life of righteousness. We're going to see in a minute, John is not talking about sinless perfection, but he is talking about the pattern, the flow, the arc of our lives that is bending toward preparing to see Jesus Christ face to face. With that... John now raises some other issues in verses 4 to 10, and I want to just read those for us once more and then get into this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Beloved, we need to read these verses very, very carefully because a lot of bad teaching has been built off of these verses right here. It's like this morning I was thinking about it. It's like we're walking across a mountain pass. In fact, I had the end of Sound of Music on my mind where the family Von Trapp is walking through the, the Swiss Alps there and they're walking right along a ridge. And if you fall off either side, you're going to get hurt really bad or die, one of the two. 
And the two sides we could fall off here is on one side, we could overread what John is saying in these verses, and we could come to the conclusion that Christians must live in sinless perfection. There are groups in Christian history who have come to that conclusion, and even to this day, who teach that any true Christian does not sin, will not sin, cannot sin. Well, that's false. And so we need to be careful not to go there. But on the other side, we could fall off on the other side of not allowing the Word of God here to pierce our hearts deeply enough because it's uncomfortable. And it is uncomfortable. In fact, it was the discomfort of these very verses that saved my life in 1986, brought me to Christ. The Apostle John led me to Christ and these were the specific words that saved my soul. I thought I was a drug addict in those times and I thought, yeah, even though I'm in rebellion and all that, I'm not that bad of a guy and God will be merciful to me, yada, yada, yada. Everybody basically thinks they're a good person. But now I'm reading John and he says, oh no, no, actually you're of the devil. You are of the devil. And these words pierced my heart so deeply that I knew I only had two choices, either to believe in Christ or die, and so I believed in Him. And i got to tell you, over this last week, as I've meditated on these verses over and over again, they have again pierced my heart. Maybe not to that extent, because I've been saved for 24 years now, but they continue piercing my heart, and I want them to pierce my heart. I want my great and gracious God to expose sin in my life so that we can get rid of it, so that I might be more like Him, so that my joy might be full. Conviction of sin is not fun, but it is the path to true and lasting joy. And so we don't want to fall off the cliff by under-reading what John has to say here and excusing ourselves Because as hard as this might be to hear, the truth is that John and God are fighting for our joy. So let's pray now in our hearts that God will help us to walk this fine line. Let me define a couple terms for you and try to try to keep us up on top of the cliff here. First of all, you'll notice in these verses, you don't need to look through it now, but later if you look through the ESV later, you'll notice that the the words everyone or no one or whoever are used eight different times. And then the words practices or keeps on are used nine different times. So what I'm about to say is that John is making an absolute statement on the one hand about certain things, and he's not making an absolute statement about certain things on the other hand. And it's really important that you listen carefully here and try to follow my train of thought. Because if you don't, you will fall off the cliff on one side or the other. So let's talk about everyone No one or whoever. When John mentions these things, everyone who does this or no one who does that, he is making an absolute statement. He does mean every single person who practices righteousness or every single person who does not practice righteousness. He is talking about an all-inclusive thing. I'm sure of it. It's an absolute term. But then when he turns to the words practice or keeps on, whoever practices righteousness, whoever keeps on sinning. He is referring to a way of life and not to every single individual act that we commit. This is extremely important that we get that straight. Let me show you what I mean in verse 6. Look there at verse 6. John says, No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. So, We have to be really careful here because John is making both an absolute and a non-absolute statement. 
He does mean that not a single person who keeps on a pattern of sinning in their lives is abiding in Christ or has ever known Christ or has ever seen Christ. He means that. But when he says no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning, he does not mean that you absolutely never ever sin again. And I know this for two reasons. First of all, in John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, John basically promises us that we're going to sin again, and he tells us what to do when we do sin. He leads us into confession, forgiveness, transformation, all of that. If John thought that Christians should be sinlessly perfect, why would he train us how to deal with our sin, right? He cannot be saying that the Christian never, ever, ever sins again. He cannot be because he would be contradicting himself in the first part of his letter. The second way that I know he's not talking about a sinless perfection is that the word practice or keeps on, that's actually the same word in Greek that the ESV is translating differently, that word always refers to a way of life and not just to a moment in time. So what John is saying is this. Let me embellish a little bit. Not one single person who abides in Christ will have a pattern of life that's characterized by sin. No one whose pattern of life is all about sinning has either seen Christ or known Christ. So on the one hand, we can't fall off the cliff and say that we have to be sinlessly perfect because I'll just be the first one to say, if that's the standard, I have to stop being a Christian today. It's not going to happen for me. This heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Amen? Our hearts will sin. But on the other hand, we need to not pull back too far from John. We need to listen to him because he means what he's saying. If the pattern of your life is characterized by sin, you must question your relationship to Christ. You must. Because the one who truly knows Christ and has this sin-removing Christ living in him or her will not, cannot live at peace in a pattern of sin any longer. We will blow it, but we will keep fighting. We will keep moving. We will keep pressing forward with one another by the grace of Christ. And so, in verse 4, John tries to make very clear for us what sin is, and he simply defines it as lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And I think the reason he does this is because false teachers tend to try to make things kind of cloudy when they're actually really clear. And my assumption is that these false teachers were kind of mitigating what sin is and what it looks like in a person's life and maybe saying it wasn't all that bad and is this thing really sin? Is that thing really sin? They're trying to cloud the issue and confuse the issue and so John just comes back and says, listen, beloved, this is not cloudy. This is really clear. When you break God's law, you sin. When you sin, you break God's law. God said, don't covet. When you covet, you have sinned. God said, don't commit adultery. And later Jesus said, don't even lust. And when you do that, you have sinned. God said, don't murder. And when you do that, you have sinned. To sin is to break God's law. It's not abstract. It's not difficult to understand. In fact, it's very plain and simple. Sin is lawlessness. Then with that in mind, look in verses 5 and 6, you'll see that John argues that Christ, who is sinless, came for the express purpose of taking away sins. 
And therefore, the conclusion that he draws is, if that Christ is living inside of you, how can you keep on with a pattern of something that Christ came to destroy? If Christ removes sin from you, why would you live a life where you keep adding to it? Keep adding to it. As Paul said, can we who died to sin continue to live in it any longer? It just doesn't make any sense. Christ came to remove our sins and so we would not get into a pattern of life that's perpetuating what Christ came to remove. That is, if this Christ is living inside of us. So now, John has made two arguments for why those who truly know Christ must practice righteousness. Argument one, if the hope of seeing Jesus Christ lives in you, then you will seek to be pure as He is pure and prepare yourself for that day when you will see Him face to face. Argument number two, if Christ who came to take away sins lives in you, His power will break the pattern of sins in your life. You may still sin from time to time. You may even get into patterns of sin from time to time. But you will have no peace about it. You will constantly be striving and struggling by the grace of God to break through. And if you're not doing that, you must question your relationship to Jesus Christ because it is the fruit when He lives inside of you. And now John moves on in the final section to basically say the same thing in verses 8 and 9, but he adds a little piece that's really important. Namely, he says that if you do not practice righteousness, which is just another way of saying if you practice a life of sin, you are a child, not of God, but a child of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning and he now has become your father. God is not your father no matter what your rhetoric is. Your behavior is showing that you have come from the devil. I have to tell you that those are the precise words that saved this soul. When I read those words, as I said, I was a drug addict and wasn't exactly living an upstanding life. I dropped out of school and left home when I was 14 years old and I lived in wild rebellion for a long time. And now here I am with the Bible open reading this and, and John is telling me, God through John is telling me that I am a child of the devil. And when I read those words, the Holy Spirit opened up my heart and I knew it was true. I knew that it was true. <laughs> just amazes me to think about the power of God in the simplicity of some words. How just a few little words could save a soul like this. And I praise God for doing that in my life. I just wanted to pause and give Him glory for what He did. But even now that I've been walking with Christ for 24 years, and I am not a child of the devil anymore, I am a child of Almighty God through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. But beloved, I still want this text to pierce my heart. I want to say to my soul, Charlie Handren, when you walk in patterns of sin, you are living like you are a child of the devil. Stop it! Stop it! The devil has been sinning. He has been in rebellion against God from the very beginning and he's trying to persuade everybody he can to follow in his ways. If Jesus Christ lives inside of you, stop that. And by His grace, break through the patterns of sin Break through your wicked ways and learn to walk in righteousness. Learn to purify yourself as He is pure. Live a life in preparation for that day which won't be long when we will see Jesus Christ face to face. And so now John has laid his third argument on the table, very close to the second one. 
First of all, if the hope of seeing Jesus lives in you, you will practice righteousness. If the sin removing Jesus lives in you, you will no longer keep adding to what He's trying to take away. And if the Jesus who came to destroy the works of the devil is living in you, you will want to join Him in His work. You will not want to work with the devil to perpetuate His ways in the world. You will now want to work with your Lord and God, your Savior Jesus Christ, to destroy the devil's works in your life, in your home, in your church, and in the world. Now with these things, John comes to his final conclusion in verse 10. If you'll look there with me one more time. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The word that the ESV translates evident here is the exact same word as appear earlier in the text when it talked about Jesus Christ appearing. So you could read this to say that by this it appears or it is revealed, it is made known who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And I do think again here that John has our character in mind. I think what he's saying is that by the way we live, our character is revealed. So we can say whatever we want to say to get ourselves and others to believe what we want them to believe, but the truth of who we are will be unmasked by what we do. That's who we actually are. I heard someone say years ago that character is who you are when nobody's looking. And that's what John's talking about here. He's talking about our behavior revealing the actual nature of who we are. And if you do not have a pattern of practicing righteousness, holiness, purity in your life, you really need to search your heart before Christ to see if you're in the faith at all. Because this Christ who comes to live in us just cannot have peace with patterns of sin. Now listen, I've told you many times, and I'll tell you hundreds of more times if God gives me life and breath at this church, I have sinned many, many times. I sin every day. I fall into patterns of sin, all of that. But I've said to you before, I can't have peace with my sin anymore. I used to love my sin. Now it tortures me. I hate it. I really hate my sin. Why? Because I really do love Jesus Christ. This Christ who is a Savior of anyone who will believe, saved me. And I love Him. Oh, I'm so grateful to Him. You have no idea. You just have no idea what He rescued me from. You really don't. And I'm so, so grateful to Him. And so when I turn my back on Him, I just can't have peace. I cannot. I cannot. And so you too might fall from time to time into particular sins, or even patterns of sin, but you will not be able to have peace if Christ is in your heart. You will not. And so by His grace, He'll reveal your sin, and John's already told you what to do. Confess it. Agree with God. Yes, Father, You're right about what, you, what I did, and You're right about the condition of my heart when I did it, and I want to repent from that, and I want what You want for my life, so please help me, God. When we pray like that, beloved, God will forgive us and He will transform us into His image. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, how powerful and good a news this is. And so this morning, if the Lord is piercing your heart now, 
shining the floodlight into your life and revealing to you particular sins and patterns of sin, I want to encourage you not to push back from Him. Don't make that mistake. That's the way to fall off the other side of the cliff. Don't do it. Let the Lord and the Word of the Lord have its way in your heart because as I said earlier, He's a tender Father and what He really wants is your highest joy. He's not trying to make you have a bad day here today. What He's trying to do is cleanse out the garbage so that you'll have more of a fullness of joy. Really good, fresh, healthy food tastes better than old, moldy food you find in the garbage can. And that's what our sin is like. It might look good to us at the moment, but it's disgusting and moldy and death-producing. He has a better feast for us, but the path to that is often pain. And that pain often has to do with confessing our sins. And so what we're going to do, Steve, if you'd come now, and we're just going to begin playing our closing song. And I don't want to sing right off the bat. I just want to give us a few minutes to just sit before the Lord and let Him stir in our hearts and just let Him draw near to us and reveal things to us as He will. He knows our lives. He knows everything about us. He also knows the good plans that He has for us to do us good and not harm. And so I want to encourage you to join me now in just letting the Lord stir in your life. And then I'll come up and pray in a minute. Father, I thank You so much for this Word. It has been for me all week like a scalpel just cutting to the depths of my soul and oh, how I have loved it. It's like going under the knife of a surgeon that I know it hurts, but I know that what he's doing is going to save my life. And so I love you for being the good surgeon, Father, the skillful surgeon, the wise surgeon, the tender surgeon. And I pray that you'd come now, Father, and open up our hearts, open up our habits, open up our ways of life, and do what you will inside of us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.